Uh, being the five o'clock hour, let me welcome everybody to this edition of Mike Drop. This is our 22nd episode, 22nd time together. My apologies for missing last week. Things have been getting a little bit unruly and screwy and crazy, as I think you all know. We're going to be talking today about some of that screwiness at this phase of the election cycle and what it all means. But first, I do want to thank our folks at Colin for making this application available. You can get Mic Drop anywhere you get your other podcasts served up hot. Um, subscribing directly to this feed is probably the best way to be alerted. If you're not a subscriber, subscribe now for me. If you get a chance and are so inclined, please share this on social media to broaden the conversation. And let's see if we can't get some more questions coming in, get some other questions asked and answered. Um, By all of our regular standards, if you are inclined to ask a question, go ahead and jump into the queue. Um, And you can go ahead and load up as soon as you want. I'll walk through this introduction first and kind of talk about the topic at hand today. There's obviously a ton to talk about, folks. There's a lot to talk about. And I do want to kind of keep us focused. One of the benefits, as you all know, of uh, I think this show is providing insight from somebody who does this for a living, who does campaigns and manages campaigns and tries to keep um, cutting through the noise to stay focused on what is the most important thing that a campaign operative, a campaign professional, a campaign consultant is advising his clients to do at this late a phase and stage in the cycle. Again, lots to talk about. We could talk about specific examples. A couple races I want to want to visit on today is the Fetterman race in Pennsylvania after the debate. I want to talk a little bit about some of the numbers coming in from Arizona that are causing me a little bit of heartache, a little um, headache, um, and I want to talk about Nevada um, because there's a lot of screwiness that are, that's going on, and I don't mean anything necessarily underhanded, um, but we are seeing extraordinary extraordinary um, extraordinarily different outcomes from different polling outfits in the same time frames with the same methodologies and the same races and we just need to talk about that a little bit so without further ado the biggest challenge I think that we're facing right now in terms of watching races and trying to discern what matters and what does not is the polling problem. I'm going to talk about that first, then I'm going to talk about generic ballot. I'll probably hit on Biden approvals, and then we'll talk specifics. But again, jump into the queue if you have any questions. The polling is absolutely everywhere, okay? And there's a couple of things that are unique about this election cycle that I have never seen before, and in talking to a lot of both political professionals, meaning consultants, as well as journalists trying to cover it and discern what it actually means, I have noticed, and it has been brought to my attention by various sources, that a lot of these polls are new polls, they're new outfits, doesn't necessarily make them bad, but what it does mean is they don't have the track record of understanding what a potential bias might mean or might not mean. There are a lot of, a lot of outfits that have a Republican bias because of the way they wait, or a Democratic bias because of the way they wait, doesn't mean that they're trying to skew the outcomes, um, although it doesn't mean they're not trying to skew the outcomes, it just means that the pollster may not be as skilled at, at waiting using a historical trend line or historical outcomes 
as somebody who um, has been doing this for a very long period of time. Now, what happens is, if a pollster, if a new polling outfit, whether it's new or whether it's old, whether it's been around for two days or, or two years or, or 20 years, if they meet certain methodological criteria, they often meet the standards that get dumped into either the 538 rolling average or the RCP Real Clear Politics rolling average. And so as long as your methodology meets certain criteria, whatever your findings are, they get pushed out um, both individually through a lot, of, a lot of individual Twitter accounts that track polling. We follow inside polling here. There's polling reports. There's a bunch of these that pop up that just aggregate polling and kick out different polling results to kind of give you the latest and greatest data points. I think that's usually okay, but as I've shared, any one poll just simply needs to be looked at as a data point at this point in time because there are so many polls. There is so much noise and so much going on that any one poll we used to say is a snapshot in time, I'm going to say it's simply a data point in time. And then the idea, which kind of was engineered largely by Nate Silver, was let's aggregate all these polls most famously in 2016, let's let's take an average of all these polls, let's dump them all in and take an average of all the polls and that will give us this this moving average of, of questions like the generic ballot or questions of which candidates and which Senate and gubernatorial races are actually winning by taking an average of all of these polls. Now, let me say this from the outset too. There is no political professional not a single one that would use this as a benchmark or as a guide to accurately direct your campaign. Not one. There's no professional political consultant that would use polling averages as a way to discern what is happening in their respective race. Every, every campaign, especially a significant one like a Senate, gubernatorial, or House race, has its own polling operation. They're using their own pollsters. Usually they will poll in the beginning of the race to find out where their candidates and opposition is at. Then they will poll a few months before voter contact gets really serious, usually in a June or July time frame. They use those survey results for internal purposes to start building the structure and the focus of their campaign operations. They use it oftentimes to raise money or send their candidates back to D.C. to meet with the lobbyists who give money to start funding the race. And then you really start digging into this stuff around Labor Day in the sprint of the actual campaign when the voters tune in. About two to three weeks prior, usually about 15, 20 days out of Election Day, of E-Day, what you do is you begin what's called a track. And the track takes, we've talked about this before, but just kind of as a refresher for those who may have missed that episode or, or who are new to mic drop, that track interviews usually a couple hundred to maybe 300 interviewees a day. You can go as low as 100 to give you a good sketch. On Monday, they interview another 100 on Tuesday, another 100 on Wednesday. And every day after that third day, you start getting what we call top-line results that blend the three-day rolling average in a way that shows you how public opinion is moving. 
the idea behind a tracking poll is it shows whether or not your campaign spend and your messaging are landing, if all the TV and the mail and the digital ads that you're buying are actually having an impact, it's gauging the impact of your opposition's voter contact, and obviously it takes into account the national mood of the electorate, so if there's something external and significant like the overturning of Roe versus Wade, or a change in the Ukraine war, or gas prices, things that are completely outside of your campaign's control are picked up in that three-day average, and it shows in the best possible way that we have how the campaign dynamics which you're controlling and are not controlling are impacting your specific race, okay? That's the way you pull a campaign from the campaign professional side. What we're doing is we're kind of jackknifing it here. We're kind of like saying, well, let's take the data that we've got that's the best, which is all this publicly available data, and let's try to discern something out of it. And that's okay. That's, that's fun. I think it gives political junkies like us a good way to kind of take a good look at things and try to get a little bit more insight and understanding. But I don't want anybody under the false impression that this is the way professionals do this, because it's not. Nobody worth their salt would be caught dead trying to run their campaign off of publicly available data for a whole host of reasons. The methodological reasoning um, being the primary one. Um, I just looked at a poll a few minutes before we started. I know I was driving. I should not have been doing that. But uh, one of my friends sent me one from Nevada showing um, Ka- uh, Catherine Korcher's Masto with a 13, I think, point lead. Um, absolutely ridiculous poll. Obviously, the kind of stuff you want to believe if you're a Democrat. But this poll had a sample size of 586 voters, which I think is far too light, but it also ran from October 5th through October 19th. That means there's a 14-day roll to get 586 responses, and it's trying to tell us that from October 5th through the 19th, um, Cortez Master was somehow posting some of these strong double-digit number, number lead, and I think it's just absolutely ludicrous. So, All of this to say, um, that's the kind of stuff that you just have to completely disregard. Now, I know it's really hard. It's really hard because all of us are looking constantly to get more information, to get some some more insight. And so what I'm going to say is this. If you're on Twitter more than an hour and you're reading polls and you're you're looking at all the prognosticators who are saying with 100% certainty what's going on and what's not going on, Um, you need to stop because it's just going to drive you crazy. This is the same advice I gave you guys in 2020 for those of you that have been following me for a long time, heading into the election with Donald Trump. It's extremely important that you be very judicious on what kind of data you're putting into your brain right now because it's far, far, far more likely to drive you crazy than it is to clarify anything that you um, are hoping to discern. And let me give you a couple case, cases in point on that, okay? First of all, let's say you do find a good poll. Let's say you do find a good quality data point. Let's say you do and you are able to discern through all the noise and all the muck, hey, this is a great poll. This, is, this makes perfect sense, and I think this gives me a really, really good solid read on what's happening in this particular race. Automatically, the next thing you're going to do is keep scrolling down and looking for more stuff, And that's going to be convoluted by the bad stuff. 
Okay, you all know that I'm, I'm speaking truth here. You all know that you've been doing this for the past couple of days, if not weeks. And that's what the next couple of days of your life are going to look like. I'm not berating anybody. I'm just telling you it's the same thing as when your kids sneak too much, too much candy and you're telling them they're going to get sick and it's not good for you. And you might like the taste of the first one, maybe even the second one, arguably the third one. But when you start getting to five, six, seven, and eight, you're going to make yourself sick. It's the same thing with pulling. It's the same exact thing with pulling. Because it's going to tell you wildly divergent data. And as it gets closer, you're looking for more and more certainty. You're looking for that pull that's going to show Fetterman up five points. And you're going to be scrolling and you're going to see one that has Oz up by two. And when that happens, then you're going to keep looking for more to justify what you already want to have happen. And you may find one. And when you find that one, you're going to keep going. What I am telling you is that is absolutely not the way to use polling. It's not, uh, it's not the appropriate use of the tool. I'm laughing a little bit because I know y'all are doing this. And I, I, know, I know that it, 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 it makes you sick. It's not good for you. And it's not clarifying things. It's actually muddying things up more. It's making the situation worse. What you're looking for is some calm, level-headed reasoning with a good, keen insight and understanding as to what is actually going on, okay? And so let's talk again about fundamentals, because the fundamentals of a race are far, far more important than any of these crazy polling that we're talking about, okay? And the fundamentals, again, we've been talking about this for the past few months, Any polling data you see is not fundamental. It's literally a data point for a moment in time. And I'm going to argue it's even questionable if it's even good at that moment in time because there are so many methodologies out there that are being used. Okay, so what I'm going to say is the fundamentals are the basic trend line of history. I know a lot of you guys don't like this because I'm going to say this advantages the Republicans. And you know what? does advantage the Republicans. They're the party out of power. Nine times out of ten, the party out of power since the early 1950s has benefited uh, the party again out of power. And you've got the Republicans who sit as the party out of power. The second most important one is the economic direction and the right track, wrong track. Okay, The right track, wrong track is, is decisively benefiting the Republicans. Decisively. Okay, It's rare to see the wrong track numbers as bad as they are right now. And when the wrong track is, is this decisively headed in the wrong track, or public opinion is suggesting that the country and the economy are headed in the wrong track, it does not bode well for the party in power. By the way, before you hang up and get all upset or say Mike's real Republican is showing or whatever you guys attack me on when I just spit straight facts, I, I, am, gonna, I am going to walk through some of the caveats to, to what we view as fundamentals because they are also very real. Okay. It has also been historically accurate that the turnout model has benefited Republicans in lower turnout elections. Midterms tend to be lower turnout affairs, but that in many ways has been turned on its head for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is in 2020, we had the highest turnout election in the history of the country, and it actually benefited Republicans. And in 2018, we had a historically high turnout where Democrats actually showed up, all those medium-low propensity Democrats showed up, And it overwhelmingly benefited Democrats. So I'm giving you the fundamentals of the race. I'm not trying to insert any of the aberrations that we have seen. I am going to say I think the fundamentals lead us 
less than guide us less than they have historically, but they remain very important guardrails to be looking at and assessing a race. So historical trend line, right track, wrong track, turnout model, to varying degrees, I think all benefit Republicans. Let me tell you what I see of benefits to Democrats. And again, whether this is a fundamental or whether this is an aberration, every election that we have seen since Dobbs, every single one of them has, been, has a turnout model that has overperformed for the Democrats and has benefited the Democrats. Okay? It has shown both a, a very significant registration spike and a uh, female turnout of, of medium to low propensity, uh, younger age cohort, uh, females for Democrats, and it has also showed... In most cases, especially Kansas and New York 19 special, a bleed over of Republican women to, um, to the Democrat Party. That's just a fact. Okay? The Democrats have done better than Republicans in turnout since, since Dobbs. Um, I'm going to put a, a little marker on that because there is also a caveat on that. Biden's numbers have clearly and, and solidly improved. I'm going to say astonishingly approved since where they sat in early summer. For those of you that, again, have been following for some time, I was telling listeners back then you had to go back literally to Truman's first term to find approval ratings this bad, this low. Okay, Biden was hitting low 30s. He's now hitting high 40s. Uh, in, in, in many polls, if you look at the average, and again, we'll talk about the average in a second, but but he has in some surveys hit mid-high 40s. That's a remarkable, remarkable and remarkably fast turnaround in approval ratings for a president of the United States. I, 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 I'm, I'm guessing here, because I'm not a very big believer in the presidential approval rating as a metric for anything. Some people use it, so I'm talking about it. But I don't think anybody, anybody in the modern era, any president in the modern era has turned around his approval ratings as fast and as significantly as Joe Biden has. Okay, so take that for for what it's worth. You weigh that however you want to in your own bed rest and go to sleep well at night regimen. Again, I don't put a huge amount of weight in it, but I'd rather have a president of my party being much more positive than negative. I'm not going to discount it entirely, but I just I don't think that voters make a correlation between the president's approval rating and the party in power. Okay, and I said this when the Democrats' generic ballot, which I'm going to talk about in just a second, but if we take the 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 Democrats' generic ballot numbers and compared them when they were sitting in a competitive range with Republicans in the summer, and Joe Biden's approval ratings were in the mid 30s, there was this gap. Remember this pernicious gap between Republican generic ballot numbers and Biden's approval ratings. Okay? So I, I'm not a big believer in it, but, but, but weight it as you will. Generic ballot. I think it's the um, 538 polling now has the Democrats with the generic ballot advantage. Okay? This is a new dynamic. This was not the case just a handful of weeks ago. I think the real clear polling average still has a Republican advantage. This may be the first time I have seen both of those two major averages saying things in the opposite direction. But as I've counseled before, I don't put a whole hell of a lot of stock in the generic ballot. I don't think it's ever been a good metric. 
And when I say ever, I mean going back to my first campaigns in the 90s. Some people swear by them. I think the Cook Report loves the generic ballot. I think Nate Silver looks at the generic ballot. I think that uh, um, Wasserman looks at the generic ballot. Good for them. None of them, again, have run campaigns. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm saying my perspective is different. I don't believe in the generic ballot when you're looking at house races. It just, it just it doesn't tell me enough. It doesn't give me enough data to conclude anything either way, especially especially when you're using a rolling average, okay? And especially when you're taking any poll that is being sent to you um, and dumping it into the average, you just end up with just a big mashed vegetable stew. You can't taste the peas from the carrots anymore. It all just tastes like vegetable mash. When you throw in so much, the average just gets clouded, and I don't think it's even telling you anything anymore. And that's not the way I want to pick house races. That's not the way I want to discern what the hell is going on in a congressional district is by taking a sample size of 586 voters nationwide, not one of whom lives in a congressional district, um, to discern what is actually happening in this area because you're not picking up any sort of the regional variances. And we could talk about that a little bit. It doesn't mean that they're worthless. It means that they need to be put into perspective. And that's really what we're talking about here is perspective. Perspective, perspective, perspective. Okay? All of this data, most of this anecdotal data, by the way, benefits the Democrats. The trend line, the momentum, at least up in, for the past few days, um, all of this stuff is benefiting the Democrats. I'm not going to say it's not. It absolutely is. I don't know how much weight you want to put into that when they're not fundamental measures of a race. Okay? I don't put a whole lot. But I'm not discounting it entirely either. I think it is noise. It is happening, but I don't think that it's driving the fundamentals. There's one other data point, one other thing I really, really want to really caution you all on, and that is early balloting results. Now, any of you guys taking notes at home, any of you guys write this stuff down, let me say this very clear in no uncertain terms. There is almost nothing that you can discern from early ballot returns. It is complete horseshit. Okay, you got guys out there that are, are putting out this data and w- uh, the more Democratic ballots from 2018 to 2020 compared to what it, it is complete garbage, complete, utter and total garbage. The same people that were telling you and doing these same measurements in 2020, not a single one of them, not one of them predicted that the Republicans would pick up seats in a high turnout election in 2020. Not a single one of them. Okay, and if you do show me that one, point them in my direction because I want to talk to them. Because they're either lying to you or they somehow got lucky because there's nobody in, there's nobody that predicted that. And they certainly did not predict it based off of early ballot returns. Further, let's talk a little bit more about why that's a bad metric. Early ballot measure, early ballot returns have been skewed since Trump poisoned Republicans' minds to thinking that that uh, the voting by mail was was um, going to affect their um, ability to have their ballots counted. Okay, and we don't talk enough about that. But of course, there's going to be a skew. That's going to be more Democrat leaning than Republican. Of course, there is. That, that the big lie mythology is still ongoing, folks. That that has not gone away. And even when it does go away. 
the chances of it um, diminishing entirely are, are virtually nil. Okay? So Republicans have flipped the script on what used to be a, a basic fundamental of campaigns, and that was that Republicans vote by mail more than Democrats. COVID changed that. Donald Trump changed that. There's going to be a large voter turnout on Election Day, and it's going to disproportionately benefit Republicans. Now, you can say, and I see a bunch of people on Twitter saying this, again, none of these Democrats have been operatives or actually run a campaign or know how this stuff works, but you can argue that you're banking enough of a lead that tactically it's an advantage for your campaign, to which I say, show me one shred of evidence, one simple shred of evidence where that is actually the case, and nobody can. And the reason why is it's completely nonsensical. All you're doing is changing voter behaviors. You're not changing propensity. You're not changing the likelihood of people to vote. What you're changing is the method by which they vote. Okay, This was a huge issue for us as Republicans in the early 1990s when I spent tens of millions of dollars training, literally training Republican voters to vote by mail. And what we found out in the first few runs is we were spending tens of millions of dollars not creating new voters, but of just retraining people to vote in a different manner. It was a complete waste of money. And I'm not suggesting anybody's wasting money now, but what I am saying is if you are politically more inclined to vote by mail now because you're a Democrat and the Democrats have been pushing vote by mail and because of COVID and or COVID restrictions, and if you're a Republican who is now much more inclined to vote at the ele- on election day, then you, you, all you've done is changed the manner with which by people are voting. You're not changing uh, propensity. You're not changing the likelihood of voting. You're changing the manner of voting. And when all of these changes are happening, especially in a very pronounced way in the past two election cycles, to somehow discern who has an advantage, it's, I, think it, I think it's extremely disingenuous. There's a lot of guys out there, and I'm not going to name names. You'll find them if you want to find them, that are just, they're, they're propagandists. And they're putting out all this information, especially talking about early balloting on how this is, this is decidedly benefiting the Democrats based off of the 2018 and 2020 models. That is complete horseshit. You cannot discern that. There's nobody who would look at that data and be able to draw any conclusions based off of previous elections under the best scenarios, let alone these last two election cycles, which are completely off the, off the guardrails. They're complete. 2020 and 20. 2018 to 2020, and 2016 for that matter, they're completely anomalous. You can't be looking at early voting uh, metrics and start discerning who has an advantage. And if you are, you're kidding yourself. Because I guarantee you every single one of these people that were using these same metrics, there isn't a single one of them, not one of them, that predicted that the Republicans would pick up seats in a high turnout election when the numbers were coming in the way that they were um, based off of this huge, massive blue advantage in vote by mail in the 2020 elections. Okay, we had to do a whole section on this. Remember, we called, it was called the Red Mirage, and we were talking about how Republicans were going to show up in huge numbers on day of voting, and those ballots would be counted first. And once they were processed, it would show Trump and the Republicans with a big advantage. And then slowly, there would be this blue pickup throughout the course of the night. You know what? I was 100% accurate. I was completely dead on because I've actually done this before. I wasn't speculating at, 
at math from various sources or different vendor data lists or different county government centers. It's, it's just basic know-how of being in a campaign and knowing how votes are actually counted and doing it for 30 years. Okay? So throw all that crap out. That's just garbage. If it makes you feel good because it's showing a huge dem break or it's overperforming, I guess you can use it. But you have to remember that n- none of this is, 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 is telling you anything real. And I guess that maybe that's even part of the message tonight is, is if for the next couple of weeks, because, look, no one's going to set down the Twitter machine and walk away from it and, and, and not, not pay attention to it for the next two weeks. The stakes are too high. There's too much going on. I get it. I get it. I get it. I completely get it. But what I am going to caution you to do is if you start chasing data point to data point and tweet by tweet from your top 20, top 30 favorite pundits, you're going to get into a lot of trouble with your mental instability because there's so much noise. Your mind is going to start looking for the data that it wants to see to give itself comfort. And you're going to have to go through 10, 15 you know, pieces of divergence data that don't get you there in order to get you to that landing spot. And so you're affirming 15 different ways negatively for every one that you're getting. And even the one that you're getting isn't necessarily a valid data point is what I'm trying to say. It's why we use the term noise. That's what it is. Okay. So you've got to focus on the fundamentals and steal yourselves for this. If Mike Madrid is wrong, then Mike Madrid is wrong. I'm not making a prediction. All I'm saying is the roadmap to what is likely to happen is pretty clear here. It has been what I've been consistent about since January. And that is there's probably going to be a Republican majority of, uh, in the House of about 20 to 29 seats. I don't think it breaks 30. I don't think it gets below 19, but it's going to be somewhere in that range. That is, by the way, the, the historical you know, number. It's like dead smacks in the center of the historical range. And incidentally, with the economic numbers and the wrong track numbers and everything that we've been dealing with for the past two years, those are pretty damn good numbers for Democrats. Now, the Senate side, I think it's a little bit trickier. I've always believed that we would be in a, Democrats would be in a plus one position. I think we might be in a negative one position now. But either way, it's not going to be anything that's, you know, terribly, um, you know, you're not going to see Republicans with a net plus five seats or Democrats plus five. Just don't think you're going to see that. Could be wrong, but that's what the historical trend line shows. That's what the fundamentals show. And if you look, if you stand back and look at the polling, not up on the screen on your nose on Twitter, on your phone, but looking at it back on a, on a chart on a wall and looking at the movement it looks like exactly what I'm saying, that each one of these individual data points add up to color something that shows the outcomes of these midterms to be smack dab in the middle of a normal midterm trajectory. And so if I were to make a prediction, not at this point, but if I were, I would say that's where this is pointing. That's what the fundamentals look like. And through all the noise and through all the chatter, all the Dobbs stuff, all the Uvalde stuff, all the Jan 6 stuff, all the bad economic news, all the inflation, all the Ukraine stuff. I remember, this is all this year, right? Russia invaded Ukraine in February, right? So you go back to these, you know, to that time frame, so much has happened this year, there's a very good chance 
that all of these polls and all of these trend lines are starting to show exactly what the historic trend line would suggest is likely to be the normal outcome of a midterm cycle. So with that, we give my voice a little bit of break. D, we're going to bring you up out of the queue. Go ahead and jump in there, guys, with your questions. Makes it a little bit easier uh, to kind of move the conversation in the direction that you want. I'm happy to address specific races, and we can talk about some of these things. But um, let's let's just just jump right into it. D, how are you? Go ahead and unmute. You're up. Uh, hey, Mike, can you hear me? Yeah. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, listening to I listened to the podcast you have with Chuck. Um, oh, good. The, the thing I wanted to say is um, I think. Um, and Democrats have this tendency and, it, you know, it's a good tendency. They want to not be insulting to like women or people of color. But yeah. I've known for a while that the Dobbs thing was only going to be temporary because the, the, the thing I made most analogous to, I think, is the Trump thing where Trump was supposed to be this this candidate. And he did lose, obviously, the second time, but he was supposed to be this candidate that would have historically like just egregiously awful poll numbers or performances with suburban women. And he, he lost some of them, but he didn't do as poorly as people thought. And mm-hmm. I kind of thought that in the summer, I'm like, there's going to be a lot of outrage, but at the end of the day, young people are not going to vote because we never vote. So all the outrage about that is not going to materialize. And then a lot of these suburban women are not going to like Dobbs, but they're still going to vote for Republicans. And I think that Democrats didn't want to necessarily say that because then you sound like, you're being condescending towards women, but that's something I've always like. I'm like, there's no way Democrats are going to like have a normal midterm. Um, but in terms of my uh, or a normal uh, g- a good year for for an incumbent party in midterm. But my two questions are one, what do you think of some of these polls and, and their accuracy in terms of polling Latino voters? Because I'm seeing a lot of D plus twenty eight and D plus twenty sixes. And I'm not, and I'm, and it seems like based on what you and Chuck talk about, it seems like it, it, Democrats are probably going to do a, like D plus fifteen with Latinos. Uh huh. Good. Well, look, great questions. Let me kind of address both of them. One, um, and you may have another question there too, but the, 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 let me talk about Dobbs really quick because this is very important. I don't know. I don't know what kind of an effect Dobbs is going to have or not have. The truth is, nobody knows, right? There's all speculation. All we can look back at is say. What has history told us? And most of the history is recent. And by recent, I mean like really recent, like since the summer. And in every one of those polls, the Democrats have overperformed. But here's where the demarcation is, which I don't think that people are paying attention to. And it's literally down to the day. Okay? And I'm not going to make a moral case for this. In fact, I'm going to make the case that it's immoral, but it was a very smart, shrewd political tactic to accomplish what they wanted to do. The day Ron DeSantis put a bunch of uh, Venezuelan, undocumented Venezuelans on a plane and sent them to Martha's Vineyard, something happened. And what happened was Republican women stopped focusing on abortion as an issue and they came right back home to the Republican Party on immigration. And as I have been telling you since the 2020 election, what this race, the midterms are going to come down to is whether or not the Republicans can hold their college-educated white female base and whether or not Democrats can hold their non-college-educated Hispanic, largely male base. Those are the two demographics that are in play. Dobbs actually moved these women over across the line. Republican women in Kansas were shown. 
but for a referendum. And then what you were seeing is that stop almost entirely and completely once DeSantis starts this tactic of talking about immigration. And what that tells me, and it's something I've known intuitively, is that if it comes down to immigration or abortion for a college-educated suburban mom, she's going to be more scared and motivated by immigration, especially black and brown people you know, committing crimes, than she is by losing abortion rights. Now, that's not all of them, but folks, it's a lot of them. And you can look right back, right square in the polling, and see exactly when that inflection point began. Okay, So that's on Dobbs. The second is, this Hispanic question is a very perplexing one. And what I want you to do is look at it the way I look at it, which is over a generational arc. I've been looking at the Latino vote for 30 years. So when I see a two- or three-point movement over two or three election cycles, that's very significant. That has been happening. It's undeniable. Now, will it continue this year? I don't know. But I will tell you what, for a realignment to occur, it doesn't need to. It doesn't need to for another two or four years. If, this is, if 2020 was the new normal, that's not great news for, for Democrats. It's not horrible, but it's not great. It means they're losing their hold. Now, if the Republicans do pick up a couple of extra points, and a Cortez Masto does perform within a 20-point range or less, that's going to drive a national media narrative that the Democrats are going to need to hit the panic. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. May not happen this year, but it's going to happen. And if it goes back to its traditional historical range, they're still going to have to make some adjustments and be concerned about it because they can't afford any, any defection any of Hispanics any more than Republicans can afford any defections amongst white college-educated suburban women. So the reason why we keep talking about the tussling over these two demographics is they're the two that show the most fluidity. The movement I talk about in polls, these two demographics keep showing that. We've talked a lot about that on abortion. We've, talked, we've seen a lot of it in the special elections. We saw a lot of it in the, in the New York special, the Nebraska special, the Kansas referendum. We're seeing the Hispanic shift rightward in all of these polls. There is some polling now coming back, showing it dropping back into a historical range, which is not atypical, by the way, of Hispanics. We're a very late deciding vote. And a lot of that falls right back into the 75-25 range, which is where a Univision poll just came out in Nevada showing Cortez Masto back down at 25, uh, back up at 75%. That's where she needs to be. She dips into 60, low 60s, high 50s. She's in trouble. She's in trouble with the whole race. If she's, if she's slipping with Hispanics into that range, she's in trouble. Now, I don't know whether she's there yet or not. There's a whole reason, there's a whole... The undecideds, if all those late undecideds that I'm talking about, if they all break towards the Democrat, which they have historically done, she should be fine. If the Republicans get 30% of those, she's probably going to lose. ...earlier today, saying what's the most important race in the country to you right now, to me it's the Nevada race, because it's going to tell us whether or not Mexican-Americans, not Latinos generally, but Mexican-Americans specifically, can have a regional variation that's different from California and Arizona. In other words, will Nevada Latinos vote like Texas Mexican-Americans or California Mexican-Americans? And the answer to that is going to tell us 
who's going to be in control of Congress for the next 10 years. Write that story down because nobody's talking about that. You heard it here first. That's the best way to look at the next 10 years of political history here in the United States. Did that, that help you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the couple, you know, because I know that the couple other thing I want to say and then ask is, um, yeah, because if you look at the I've noticed that Obama in 2012 won 71-27 for yeah. the exit poll. Yeah. And usually Democrats win about, according to the exit polls, which can be inaccurate, about 65 percent in um, in uh, our midterm years, like 2010 and 2014. Right. Um, and I've noticed that in a lot of the Hispanic polls, there is it will be like something like 55 percent to 30 percent. So you do see a lot of undecideds. But the last question I wanted to ask is what races governor and Senate are you more bullish on for Democrats than you were like a couple weeks ago? And then what races are you more bearish on than you were a couple weeks ago? I'm, I'm, let me start with the bear because this is the biggest one. The most bearish race I am at it with um, Democrats is I, I think Kerry Lake is going to win in Arizona. I, I don't, I'm not even sure that I, I, she's just, the Republican there is pulling ahead and I don't see the Hobbs campaign doing a damn thing about it. They're not doing anything right. I'm very nervous about Arizona because it's a linchpin to the 270 map. It's an absolutely critical state for Democrats in 2024, and we may have a Republican governor and a Republican secretary of state and arguably even a Republican attorney general. I think Mark Kelly wins that race, but I think Republicans are going to do better there than I have ever thought. It makes me very, very nervous, but that's where I'm more bearish on Democratic prospects, and I think it's too important a state for that to happen. Um, I will say in terms of a Democratic bullish position, it's going to sound strange, but the Democrat in Oklahoma is probably going to win for governor. Um, Trying to remember her name. But you have a particularly bad incumbent who's particularly unpopular and a particularly strong female Democratic governor running in Oklahoma. Um, And I think that Oklahoma, one of the most conservative states in the union, is probably going to have a... Uh, Democratic governor. Not not probably what you were thinking in terms of an Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, you know, Wisconsin. I'm just not seeing that late shift yet. There is some evidence in the past 48 hours that there is a break towards Democrats. I'm not convinced of it yet. It may happen. We still have a good amount of time to see this late break that I always talk about, this seven to 10 day breakout um, happen. It looks like it's starting to swell for the Democrats at just the right time. It could absolutely happen. We may see it in the North Carolina Senate race. If you see the Democrat who's within, you know, margin of error, one or two points, either way in that race, if the Democrat, by the way, if the Democrat wins in North Carolina, and you're going to know early on election night, if the Democrat wins that race or is even within one or two points, it's probably going to be a really good night for Democrats. So those are the states that I would keep an eye on. Call. Cool. Dave, thanks for uh, thanks for those questions. Those were really, really insightful. I've been uh, doing well. I've been um, following um, the um, early vote uh, data. Uh, you know, probably for about the past week. Uh huh. Um, so I got a couple of um, questions. Uh, first, 
Um, I, I heard with the 1998 midterm election, Republicans were supposed to do really well that year. And then I, like, 19, like, nine, it kind of just 1998. Yeah, then it all broke down for the Republicans and they didn't get any gains where the Democrats actually performed pretty well. Uh-huh. Um, what happened um, that particular year um, where it was the Republicans were really bullish and then it, it just didn't materialize. I'm digging deep here, but I was the political director of the California Republican Party that year. That was all about the Clinton trial. And, you know, in retrospect, it's pretty easy to discern what was happening is the Republicans overplayed their hands during the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton impeachment trial. And when they, when they, had him, when they were impeaching him, the American public were like, was like, hey, wait a second, this is a sexual indiscretion. This is not an impeachable offense. The economy was doing well, and the Republicans dramatically overplayed their hand. And it was all a function, all a function of the Republicans overplaying their hand. None of that was picked up in polling because nobody was polling the question that way. In many ways, it's kind of like nobody seeing the Hispanic shift in COVID because everyone was just saying, oh, it's an economic issue. That's the same that Hispanics have been saying for 30 years when they were saying something very, very specific that nobody was testing. Same thing was happening in 1998. Now, that may be happening again, although people are testing the abortion question with Dobbs pretty, pretty broadly, pretty specifically, both broadly and specifically. And they're really discerning whether or not it's driving certain elements of the Democratic base specifically out to vote. But in 1998, the economy was relatively good. And the Republicans had dramatically overplayed their hand, and it had everything to do with the Monica Lewinsky um, uh, and, and Bill Clinton impeachment scandal. And that's why um, nobody saw Democratic pickups in a year that Republicans should have done well. Yeah, that, um, that definitely um, makes sense. What's the chances of this year? Um, Republicans overplaying their hand. Well, I've always said, you know, I'm a huge believer in negative partisanship, and the Republicans are viewed as the more extreme party by like eight points. It's not small. So, and I've also believed, and I've shared this with you guys too, I believe that that was holding up the Democrats' generic ballot numbers, um, even when Biden's numbers were sitting in the middle of 30s, that it was a function of anti Republicanism. So, that's a very big part of it. And, you know, these independents, they were moving. Again, remember, look for movement. They were, the January 6th hearings were moving independents away. They absolutely were. Like, this extremism frame is there. It's set there. The question is going to be, have the Republicans moderated enough and focused so overwhelmingly on inflation and crime and law and order and immigration, all of which, by the way, they win amongst voters decisively. They have decisive advantages on the biggest issues of the day. That's one of the fundamentals you got to look at. Now, is that is, now they're also viewed as the extreme party by a wide swath of Americans. Like I was saying, eight points. That's a pretty big differential. That's not good news for the Republicans. It's not. So what are the chances? What are the odds? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm only looking at the public data that you're looking I could tell you with internals um, if I if I had access to any if I was by 
Like, uh, on, like you're breaking on behalf of clients, I could tell you, you know, hey, I think that was probably going to mitigate the fundamentals of a strong Republican year and make it kind of, yeah, it's probably going to break, bring it down to a weak or decent Republican year when it should normally be a strong Republican. I think what this is basically going to lead to, Austin, is it's going to lead to a decent, a weak to decent year for Republicans instead of a strong, normal, historical year for Republicans. Uh, my second um, question uh, is going to be um, John Ralston's analysis with Nevada. Um, so you're, you, you made an argument that you know, early vote data can't tell as much, but as far as I know, I think John Ralston's like called pretty much um, – every race every year just based on reading the tea leaves of the early vote data. Uh-huh. Um, what do you think about that? I've, I've learned not to buck what Ralston is saying, but I don't know that that's going to be the best metric for what um, is going to give us the outcome. I don't think he's called the race yet, right? He hasn't made a prediction. He's just saying this is a stronger dem year than he was expecting. Is that what he was saying? Yeah, what's going on uh, with the early vote data is um, I think the mail-in ballots were sent out pretty late, so we haven't got a lot of those back. But the early in-person vote for Republicans is not nearly as um, high turnout as it was in 2020. So it's a little weird. Um, It's just low turnout at the current moment. But if you're looking at margins by party registration is what he's been looking at. Um, the mail-in ballots have been coming in at about the similar clip as 2020, and the early in-person is about the same for Republicans as it was in 2020. Yeah, I think that tells us absolutely nothing. Tells us absolutely nothing. Uh, if I, like, let's say if I did a comparison to a different state. So if I look at... Austin, the Austin, Georgia. Austin. I spent a whole segment on this. The early voting yeah. results tell you absolutely nothing. They do not tell you anything. It, the statewide, but I guarantee you, he was not calling the down ticket races. There is nobody in America who is looking at the early balloting the early results and saying this is going to be a strong Republican year down ticket. Nobody, nobody said that Republicans were going to pick up seats. So I don't buy that. I think it's a, it's a, it's a need for people to kind of look at some information that they have and try to divine something that is not there. You cannot make the kind of assumptions that people try to make off of those from out there are complete apples to oranges year to year. They, 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 they tell you literally nothing. You can make up. Well, I can't. Every once in a while. But that doesn't mean that, that you know, causation is, you know, correlation is causation. You, you can't make those leaps with early voting data. You just can't. Yeah, I mean, certainly it, it's not possible, I think, to with certainly um, certainly call a race. But uh, what I... Uh, I've seen so far, you know, the African-American turnout in Georgia is very robust, like it was in the runoff election. So um, in that case, for Raphael Warnock, um, he has a, a fighter's chance of pulling that seat. That's why I I've know, always, I've, 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 I've always said that. 
But the African-American turnout was robust in 18, and Abrams lost. It was robust in 20, when we won with Biden. It was robust in the special. It's going to be robust, not just African-American turnout. All the turnout is high. That's what, that's what really frustrates me about these people trying to discern what's happening with early balloting. They're trying to say, oh, these turnout numbers are high or these are low based off of the historical trend line. What, ha- what happens if you're entering an era of extended high turnout, which is what most of the data is saying? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means you can't discern or divine what any, anything from that data because you don't know. There's very high African-American turnout. You know what? There's also very high white turnout. And there's high Latino turnout. What does that tell you? Probably going to be high turnout. Anything beyond that, you cannot discern. You can't. Good questions. I love the way that you watch this stuff. We're going to go ahead and move on to Katie. Katie, you're up next in the queue. Go ahead and unmute and ask away. All right. Um, I'm, I, I'm from Minnesota. Uh-huh. Um, I've asked a couple of questions before. Um, and Donald Trump just weighed in on both of our Secretary of State and govern, uh, Governor's mm-hmm. races um, and endorsed the Republican candidates. We're both insane election deniers. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you have any um, thoughts about um, how that will affect um, things at this late stage in the game. I think it hurts them. First part because he's unpopular with independents, especially in the Great Lakes states. He's very popular with Republicans. He, uh, in most states, he's very popular with Republicans still. He's still a factor in getting Republicans out of primaries, whether it's clearing the field for them like a Herschel Walker or whether it is pushing them through like a Dr. Oz, Kerry uh, Lake. Um, he, is, he is popular with Republicans, but he is increasingly unpopular with independents. It's why the language that Joe Biden and the Democrats were using about MAGA Republicans became particularly powerful is, is Biden wasn't speaking to Democrats or Republicans who no longer had an appetite for these, you know, the, the brand of, of, of Republicanism that has emerged. So I, I don't think that's going to help uh, those candidates. Um, we will see what happens. The, those states often show closer than you would hope or expect. But I think actually the Great Lakes states are, are, are going to um, move towards a, a more a bluer position than they otherwise would. I think we saw that in 2020. And my hope is that we'll see that um, again in, in the midterms. I haven't seen any data to suggest that, but there are very, very few states where Donald Trump outside of Donald Trump is a net positive. Okay. I was a little, I was a little nervous because it just came out yesterday on yeah. um, the endorsements and they hadn't, apparently hadn't actively um, courted him for an endorsement. Um, I think because they know that it's pretty evenly divided. Yeah. State. Um, That's a big sign. actually. Enough- That's actually a big sign. If they're not actively courting him, there's a reason, and that means that their internal polls show that it's not a positive for them. What he is doing is he's forcing himself on them to, to put his imprimatur on the party, win or lose. 
He's trying to build support and saying, I'm the one who's got control here. If his support, that's actually the most important data point you could give me. That means he's a net negative for their campaign. <laughs> so him endorsing probably hurts them or certainly does not help them. Okay. Right. Well, that's a little comfort. Good. Well, I hope there's a little <laughs> bit. You. Yeah. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate your questions and, and your uh, being a regular attendee here. Right. Thanks, you Steve. bet, Katie. Andrew, you are up in the queue. How are you, Mike? You are. How are you, buddy? Missed you last week. How are things? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, life gets in the way of fun. Um. So my question, I'll cut the questions. Um. Uh, how is Walker doing with suburban women in um, in uh, NGA? Is he um, is he underwater? And is the constant uh, abortion thing um, dragging him under? Yeah, that's a great question. Cross tabs. Walker's biggest problem has been keeping Republican women um, in the base in the tent. They just started to come. Uh, back home after a long summer before the first abortion story broke. I guess there was another one today that came out saying yeah. something. He had another abortion, different woman drove her to the clinic or something, and she's got photos of them yeah. in the hotel afterwards. Yeah. So, look, I, I, I think this hurts. I do. I do. Is it enough? As I said last time when we talked about the crisis comms around this, it's not a knockout punch, mm. and don't be surprised if he even got a pop out of it. Now, he didn't. He, he dropped a little bit and came back up. I think that softness um, is what probably does him in um, because he needs yeah. all of it. He needs 100% of it to remain competitive. The other thing to be watching is Warnock's numbers. <laughs> Warnock's got a really steady, tight, strong range. Good chance this thing goes to a runoff. Warnock's yeah. numbers are remarkably solid. I kind of equate this race to what's happening in Brazil, where Lula's numbers um, were remarkably consistent. The polling was right on those. Bolsonaro's, because it was socially unacceptable to say, you know, to answer, it's like with Donald Trump, there was a shy Correct. vote. Correct. Uh, Bolsonaro yep. was actually about eight, nine, ten points stronger than he actually was. But the real important number to look at was Warnock's, because that tells you how strong his base of support is. I'm sorry, no, was to look at Lula's. I think it's the same with Warnock. Warnock's not coming down. His numbers aren't dropping. He's got a pretty pretty strong base floor level of support. He's having trouble breaking through that ceiling, but the softness of of Walker's numbers shows that even if even if Warnock gets 10, 20% of those people to peel off, he's in a good position to win the thing. That's kind of the way I look at the race right now. Do enough women hold their nose and vote for him? or A lot, a, a lot will. Most will. Um, the, the, you asked the question the right way. Will, will enough? Um, again, we, we don't know. My suspicion is probably not. Because you know, Warnock only needs two of ten women to not vote for him. One of 10 makes it hard. So he doesn't need a lot, mm. right? We're not talking about 50%. We're not talking about 70%. We're talking about you know, maybe even single digits. Uh, this race is that close. My guess is that probably happens. Um, but we'll have, to, we'll have to wait and see. Like I said, we're, we're, look, we're witnessing how strong the whole idea of negative partisanship is. I mean, this guy's not, mm. 
he's not okay. He's, he's, he's not mentally stable. He's, you know, suffering from a series of concussions. He's clearly been lying. Mm-hmm. He has massive character flaws. You know, all of these things are, are so damaging, which would have taken out a normal candidate under normal circumstances throughout the course of our lifetime. Now, now yes. they're just kind of, you know, ah, uh, yeah, you, you brush it all off. There's like nothing that is going to shake enough numbers off of Walker to push him, you know, down to a mid-40s range. It's just not going to happen. What you have to hope is that there's enough single-digit voters that will step off of him because they simply can't stomach it. I believe that that's probably there, but I also think there's a good chance this goes to a runoff and we're, we're fighting about this, you know, heading into January. Yeah. Um, and my, my other question, um, Mark, was um, does, uh, does Shapiro pull Fetterman over the line? Is that That's a great question. On? That's a great way to phrase it. I don't know because I'm not a big believer in coach tales. I'm a much bigger believer in split tickets. If you look at what's happening next door in Ohio, DeWine's at 16, Vance is at maybe two or four. If you look at what's going on in Arizona with Kelly, you've got you know Kelly in a, in a Let's say plus four, and now you've got Hobbs uh, in a negative one, negative two position. So people are probably going to split tickets in Arizona. They're going to split tickets in Ohio, uh, Georgia, right? Kemp is going to win this race, and I think Warnock yep. probably does too. So you're going to see split ticketing there. Um, I, I, that's just a norm. I think that's a norm. People are, are, are starting to, to use ticket splitting as a check. They're very, they're very aware of the balance of power. In the House, I'm sorry, in the Senate, and um, you know maybe comfortable voting for a Republican like a Shapiro, but may not like that down ticket. Um, I still think Fetterman's in a stronger position. I'd still rather be Fetterman at this moment in time than Oz. It's closer than it should be. I think there will be some scary polling in the next 48 hours, but I think the fu- I think the yes. fundamentals of Pennsylvania are such that it probably comes home and Fetterman does does okay. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's more likely that there will be split ticketing than a coattail effect. Yeah, cool. you Thanks, bet, Mike. Good talking to you. Thanks again for the questions. Yeah. Cheers. <coughs> okay, you're up in the queue. Go ahead and unmute and ask away. Hi, Mike. Thanks again for doing these. It's really beneficial. Yeah, I'm glad. So that appreciate means a lot that. to me. I'm happy to do them as long as you guys find them valuable. Yes, please, please do. I have a quick question. I'm curious what your perspective is on why DeSantis is essentially um, the migrant stuff that he pulled mm-hmm. will move the polls, as you referenced earlier, but a school shooting this past week in Missouri and a shooting in a labor and delivery unit and a hospital in Texas and likely other shootings that I'm not even aware of don't even move the needle for these suburban women that are allegedly so paranoid about crime. Well, I'm going to tell you explicitly why. It's because when you're talking about immigration, you're talking about brown men. And Uh, and when Republicans are talking about crime and law and order, they're talking largely about black men. So, I mean, that if you, if this was, if these were black lives matter shootings, you bet your bottom dollar that, that women, white suburban college educated, you know, GOP women would be behaving uh, you know, in a certain way. 
Um, you, have, you also have to remember these are Republican women. They, they are Republican. They know why they're Republican for whatever reason that they are. It's not like they're undecided. Like they know where. Uvalde, I think, pushed them out of that. The George Floyd murder in early 2020, spring of 2020, pushed them out of that zone. January 6th, that refrigerator home pushed them out of that comfort zone. A lot of these women, most of them are comfortable with the Republican Party, by the way. When I'm talking, when I say a lot, I'm talking 20, 30 percent. That's a big number, right? There's 20, 30 percent of Republican women that are like, this is, I just, I don't know if this is like, how much more can I do this? This party, you know, they're, they're keeping automatic guns in kids' hands. They are attacking black and brown people. They're against abortion rights. Yeah, they try to... more can I put up with? That's the debate. That's what's going on. And so when you ask the question, is it straight up about crime? No, it's about race and crime. That's what it's about. Is it because it's mostly white young males yeah. doing this yeah. school shooting? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, for sure. If those were black men or they were Muslim men, do you think they would be reacting differently? A hundred percent. Of course right. they would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know the answer to that. Yeah. My stomach. No, I know. Yeah, that's no, a hundred percent. That's what it is. That's, that, I mean, like I said, if, if these. If these were, were men from the Middle East, if these were Black Lives Matter activists or somebody had been involved with BLM, or if these were undocumented immigrants, I mean, Fox News would be running that for a month. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. If it's a victim. Exactly. Well, thank yeah. you. I appreciate sorry, that. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's unfortunately the truth. I know it's not very inspiring, but yeah, that's what, what it is. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's where we're at. Keep yeah. keep well, working. We'll, we'll get reality, there. Right? Yeah, yeah. All right, thanks. Craig, my man on the ground in Arizona, I think I owe you an apology. You were trying to tell me about the Hobbs campaign months ago, and I wasn't listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know what, Mike? I got better news. Okay, you. let's hear it. I think the Hobbs campaign has gotten more aggressive here in the last two weeks. Okay. I've seen a lot more ads. They're a lot sharper. Um, they got to be more damaging. Uh, Craig, did I lose you or did you guys lose me? Can you guys hear me? Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Oh, there you are. I can hear you. Okay. Sorry, Craig. We lost you for a little can bit. Can you hear there. me, Mike? Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Now a story's breaking about Katie Hobbs' office getting broken into last night. Um you know, I don't see the signs out here anywhere near like I did in 2020. I don't mm-hmm. see the, the right-wing enthusiasm. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't know if that means a darn thing or not. <laughs> but um, my question is, is how far do you think that these right-wing groups are gonna, will go before the um, people start voting the other way? Yeah, that's a good question. And just for those of you uh, that may be new to mic drop, Craig is kind of our, our man on the ground in Arizona. It gives us kind of updates as to what's happening in that really contentious battleground state. The question about extremism and how much people will tolerate, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, when, every time I watch, you know, reruns of the January 6th insurrection, I'm like, how, how can anybody possibly stand with this? 
Um, I, I Look, I have shared with all of you, I believe we are in the very early stages of an, a very acrimonious age in American history. I think the demographic transformation, the technological disruption, and the economic dislocation that we're experiencing, any one of these would be very difficult for a society to deal with. We are sitting at the convergence point of all three. And that's going to create a very, very disruptive, very angry, very chaotic, um, probably somewhat violent political environment. And so this, the rise of extremist groups like this are not going to dissipate any time. And unfortunately, what I see is a lot of behavior that wasn't unlike what we saw in Northern Ireland with the Troubles, where if you're not directly involved in the political extremism, you've got neighbors or friends or family that are, and you're not necessarily speaking out against it because you may never be violent yourself, but you're in some ways kind of glad someone else is because you don't like the way things are going. And that's, that's the real danger of the moment. And I, I think that lasts with us for some, some period of time. Like I said, I, I'm a big believer in demography and looking at science as a way of understanding what's happening in society. And I believe that we will get better, but I think we're going to literally a segment of, of the older population leave the planet before we can start to heal and start to become a, a, a more diverse people that are comfortable in a pluralistic society. I think that's unfortunately the reality. I, I agree with you 100% there, Mike. And one more question yeah. for you, um, and it's regarding the Latino mm-hmm. vote. You know, almost all the, the crosstabs that I've looked at inside these polls, um, the Latinos are about evenly split for Lake and Hop. Yeah. You know, roughly around 43, 44%. And I know you said traditionally that the Arizona Latinos vote along with the California voters about 75, right. 25. If, that, if it turns out to be that way, can we, you think we're in for a good night or should I break out the heavy stuff? <laughs> you might want to break out the heavy stuff now just to prep for it, Craig. Uh, <laughs> look, if, if Carrie Lake is getting in the high 30s of Hispanic support in Arizona or better, she's going to win. I mean, she just is. You're not going to be able to – I just don't see how a a Democrat overcomes that. A Democrat can't allow more than maybe 31, 32 at the most percent of the Hispanic vote to go towards the Republican. I believe in Arizona most of that will come back into line. I believe that Hobbs will get pretty darn close to that low 30s number. I, I don't think that I don't think that uh, could be wrong, but if I do, then the whole narrative of the country is going to change because it won't have just happened in Arizona. It will definitely happen in Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada as well. But if Carrie Lake is getting in the mid to high 30s, she's going to win that race. What, what's the key demographic for Hobbs right now? She, need, like, what, she needs independents, especially women, to come back to her in big numbers. And she's losing. She, it's not that she's losing that vote. She's splitting it too evenly. I'm convinced that that campaign believed that Carrie Lake's crazy would, would be so evident that people would respond negatively to it. And Hobbs is not a great candidate. She's more of a bureaucrat. No. And, and so, you know, you've got a bureaucrat running against this kind of crazy, telegenic, aggressive personality who is defining the terms of the campaign 
and and you've got a, a you know perfect recipe for disaster here. I will say this: if Carrie Lake wins this race, and right now I believe she will, unfortunately, she may be a contender for president in twenty four. She's she she yeah. has that type of electricity with the Republican base. She's a woman. She's intelligent, and she knows how to prosecute a case and an interview because she's been an interviewer for thirty years. And she's just good at it. And she's, she believes the crazy. You can tell she believes it. She's not like a latecomer to it. She buys into it. She's, she <laughs> swallowed the hook. And, and that comes across. And, and those people love it. And they love her. So, well, so what, what kind of odds do you give Hobbs for that night right, for election night right now? I'm going to say it's 55-45 <clears throat> Lake. Lake, uh, ho- yeah, Hobbs can win. <laughs> Hobbs can definitely win. Okay, and 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 Latinos come home the way they probably will in Arizona. If you have Hispanics coming home, and you do get enough of that, you know, Republican women base, of which there are a lot in Scottsdale, a lot in in Tempe, there's a lot in the surrounding Maricopa County areas. I mean, that's that area is not poor, you know, rural Alabama. That's this well-to-do communities. That where abortion is a real issue, and um, there a lot of them are, are much more comfortable with with Hispanics there as a border state than than in a place like uh, Michigan or in a place like uh, you know an Alabama. Um, I think you could I think you could see her break back into contention, but man, she I'm glad they're going negative and going hard to get on that horse now. They're running out of time. <laughs> They do. They do. And the ads have been sharp. You know, I don't think they're even from her campaign. I think there's yeah. other parties putting yeah. these ads, to be yeah. honest with you. Um, so they're all welcome. Yeah, all the, all the, <laughs> all the air coming. support you can get. But, yeah, that's what's coming is the D.C. folks are saying, get us our best hatchet, man, and go in there and start hacking away at her because she's, she's surging. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, one more thing, one more thing I just wanted to point out is that if you look on 538, you know, they have seven polls and five of them are, you know, GOP funded uh-huh. polls and one is a uh, data progress. So I don't know how much I'm truly believing that, you know, she, you know, Lake is up three to four points in, in all honesty. That's, um, I just wanted to hear, that, to hear your it's opinion fair. on that. I mean, I, 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 I look, I mean, the, they're, they're, what we're going to find out is a lot of these polls are skewed for public purposes because it, it keeps the conversation in contention. And a lot of these things have a way of becoming self, self-realizing self truths. If you say this person's in contention, people start to put it in contention. But I, you know, I, I, I'm not a big believer in the polling averages. Like I said, I, there's nobody in a campaign construct that would ever use a polling average as a real instrument, as a real data point. It's just not. It's not the way that they're supposed to be used either individually or in aggregate. We do it because it's a cool thing to look at and it gives you know people that don't have the insight of campaigns, including myself now, not doing a campaign right now, any good, real usable data to discern what's happening in a race. It's all just publicly, you know, like I said, it's, it's not vegetable soup anymore where you can taste the difference between the peas and carrots. It's just kind of a mash, vegetable mash. And then I don't, it's not telling us a whole lot. I do. Th- I do think it's. I do think it's a closer race than it should be. Do you, Do you think the lake the lake campaign would possibly fund these polls and skew them towards Republicans? So in case she does I, lose, she can scream fraud. 
at the top of her lungs and have a little more. Well, she's going to do that anyway. She doesn't need that data or that evidence. And they're certainly not going to say the polls were right because they've been saying the polls were wrong. But there are definitely groups in. Because, uh, you know, the primary results that the way it was split, Vance barely made it over to finish playing with Yeah. Dwight. And he hasn't campaigned with DeWine, and there's there's a lot of hard feelings along yeah. the way. So yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, there's other information out there that's showing um, about one in five, quote unquote, Republicans. And by this, I mean the rhinos like DeWine. Are, are going over to um, Ryan, and, and Ryan's really working hard for those Yeah. Guys. So I wonder how to interpret that data. Yeah, so a couple of things, and the last data point I think is the most hopeful for me, and I'll get to that in a second, but the first, um, you know, look, Ohio's a Republican state. It's been moving Republican um, for, for many election cycles, and you really have to look at the trend line. It used to be very much a bellwether state. It, it really no longer is. Ohio has a higher than national average number of non-college educated white blue collar workers. That is the Trump base. That is where Trump, you know, that's where Trump became Trump. And I've talked to a reporter before we jump on mic drop today from Politico. He's heading out to Ohio. He's going to be in South uh, southeast Ohio, which is right where he should be to get a sense of how, how Ryan is connecting. Um, you know, we went over some of the questions he's going to ask. There will probably be see, still be some old Trump flags flying and old faded Trump signs in that part of the state. Um, the question as to DeWine, you know, DeWine's winning this race by 16 points, like good, comfortable. It's, He's winning like Gavin Newsom is winning in California over the over the over the uh, Democrat, okay, and and Vance is like maybe up one or down one, and and so at face value it's like yeah that he has if he hasn't closed the deal now, there's a good chance that a lot of these rhinos like Dewine or Mike Madrid break towards the Democrat, <laughs> right? I mean I did with 2020 with Biden.